Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Deanna Rayborn's motto in life and writing is expect the unexpected and her best-selling historical mysteries are the perfect expression of that. They're plotted with the intricacy of a symphony. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and today Deanna talks about how she had to write for a very long time before she got published and what she learned from that experience and why we've totally misjudged Victorian women. But before we talk to Deanna, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Deanna's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe if you want to hear future episodes. But now, here's Deanna. Hello there, Deanna, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Hi, Jenny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be um, on a podcast from across the world. I know. It's fun, isn't it? (laughs) Um, (laughs) People always like to know, readers are always curious to know how authors got started writing fiction. And I know you had quite a strong background in uh, English literature before you started writing yourself, but was there a once upon a time moment when you felt I must write fiction myself? And if so, was there a catalyst for it? No, there absolutely wasn't because I honestly do not remember a time when I wasn't making up stories. Um, I, I, I do distinctly remember being about three or four years old and finally I, I learned to read pretty early. I was about four when I learned how to read and I was so excited because I could finally make sense of all the signs that were on the streets and I could finally read my books by myself. And then I got really excited when I learned how to print because then I could start making up stories of my own. And that's, I mean, I've, I've been doing that ever since. I, I don't have any juvenilia. Like, there's never going to be a Jane Austen moment where I can publish things that I wrote when I was, you know, 12 years old. But, um, but I was always making things up. And so when I went to university, I decided to double major in English and history because I knew I wanted to write historical fiction. And that seemed like the most logical thing to do. Never occurred to me to major in creative writing. Um, but I, I went for English and, uh, and history and, and it's, it served me pretty well. That's amazing that that young, you actually already knew the genre that you wanted to work in. Well, you know, I think it was, it was born out of, um, wanting to write what I love to read. And so because I loved historical fiction, it just, it made sense to me. Um, and I actually, I sat down and wrote my first novel when I was, 23. I had just finished my first year of teaching high school. And uh, during summer break, I sat down and wrote a novel. It was, I think it took me seven weeks and it was 120,000 words. And I have never in my life written that fast before or since. Um, And it was hideous. It was a hideous experience. But I got addicted to the whole idea of starting a story, seeing it through to the end and finishing it. 
Yeah, that that is impressive. One hundred twenty thousand words in seven weeks for sure. Um, oh, it's insane! It's insane. <laughs> And you've done your historical mysteries, though, with a little bit of a twist, because right from the beginning, you included a romantic subplot, and it was a meshing of two separate genres. And I just wondered, I know that there are a few people doing that these days, but when you started perhaps more than a decade ago with your Julia Gray series, was there any resistance from publishers who wanted you to do either one thing or the other? No, it wasn't resistance as much as it was kind of uh, scratching their heads and puzzlement, not knowing where to place you. Because the way traditional publishing works, as, as I'm sure you know, is it's all about where they can slot you. Because the publisher has to know how to pitch you to the buyer for the stores. The stores have to know where to slot you on the shelf. The librarians need to know where to shelve you. Readers want to know where to find you. And so it all starts with what genre are you? Who are you? Where do we put you? And with a cross genre book, it's just, it's not that easy to figure out um, where a writer should be placed. If you ask me, I'm a mystery writer. That's what I've always been. Um, and I've been very, very lucky to have a lot of readers who cross over from romance to read my books. And I appreciate that hugely. Because the convention of romance novels is that you get a happily ever after or a happily for now. The, there, there's a resolution of some sort to the relationship. And I don't give readers that within the scope of one novel. Um, over the span of an entire series, we may be inching our way towards that, but it's never guaranteed. You may never see it. And a reader's not going to get that payoff from one book. Um, you know, you can, you can lift the relationship out of my book and you still have a mystery. If you lift the mystery out, you don't have a satisfying romance. Um, and so that's why I'm, I'm, I'm always deeply, deeply grateful to romance readers who come along for the ride because it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit out of, of what they prefer uh, for their reading. So it's, it's, it's a kindness on their part to read my stuff. But your, your, your two male protagonists, Nicholas Brisbane and Stoker in the two different series, there's the Veronica Speedwell series as well, which we'll get onto mm -hmm. soon, but they're both such fascinating men and you manage to string out the, um, the whys and wherefores of why they can't instantly get together. There's all sorts of complications mm -hmm. which prevent them from getting together. So, I mean, even as someone who enjoys romance, I really enjoy that feeling of being strung along a little bit. And I think that's probably what the payoff is, that you, you do know that in the end there is going to be some resolution and it's fun being there for the journey. <laughs> yeah, it, it's um, it, it's just a very, very slow burn. It's the slowest of burns. <laughs> and I do, I do try to throw a few breadcrumbs out there in each book uh, where, you know, for readers who are attentive to that sort of thing, that, that they will, they'll get a little, a little, you know, tasty morsel in every book or so uh, where they can see, yeah, we, we are inching towards something. And, and, you know, every, uh, every book will give you um, just that fraction more depth to the relationship and that, that tiny bit more intimacy and, you know, maybe a kiss. And um, is that even harder to sort of do successfully than the very complicated plotting that's involved with the mystery? No, I don't think so. I think, I think it, it, that part of it really just kind of comes naturally. That's a, that's a gut thing. I just, I, I go with that with what feels like 
is natural for the characters the way I've set them up um, and and how far and how fast they should progress towards um, kind of conceiving any sort of feelings for each other and then expressing any sort of feelings for each other because that's a completely different scenario. Um, and it's just that part of it's just a lot of fun. Uh, that's just enjoyable to play with. So when the plot is maybe, you know, giving me 40 new gray hairs, the, the emotional aspect of it is just, it's just joy. Yeah. Yeah. And we have mentioned the complicated plot and I guess you probably do have to start out with a reasonably detailed outline, do you? I do. And I, I kind of hate that. That's the, that's the, the part where I swear to you, every time I have to write a synopsis, I end up Googling, how do you write a synopsis? Because it's one of those things that I have developed a mental block about because I dislike writing them so into the only thing worse is like writing my own biography, uh, when I have to do those, but the synopsis is, uh, one of those things that just kind of, uh, turns you inside out because, you're figuring out how you're going to set it up and how you're going to end it. And those are things that I know, but I don't always know. I mean, I know A, I know Z, I may know G and Q, but it's all the other points in between that I suddenly have to put down for seven pages uh, in order to turn into my editor. And that's the part that that really makes me squirrely. Um, luckily for me, I have a brilliant editor who is, in, she's a, a genius about saying, I know this is not what you're going to keep. I know you're going to change a lot of this and that's fine. Um, I just, I turned in a manuscript last week and had to actually redraft the synopsis so that they could use it in-house because, of course, that's how they write the um, the little blurbs, you know, the, the summary that goes on the back of the cover. Um, they have to have a copy of it that is relevant. Um, and I realized how far I had deviated from the synopsis uh, and completely had to, to go. And I think I got to keep two paragraphs out of seven pages and had to completely rewrite the rest of it um, so that it would it would be congruent with the book that I actually turned in. So luckily for me, my editor is very patient and very understanding. Now, Julia Gray has grown. Well, I, I don't know. There's probably, are there any more Julia Gray books coming or is that series now finished? Um, that is one of those questions to which there is no <laughs> black and white answer. And I'll tell you why. Um, uh, there were five books in the series. And then the, the story kind of continued through four novellas, uh, which together are the length of one more book. And when we ended it, um, that that wasn't my decision. That was my previous publisher who decided to end it. And so when I eventually left that publisher, I took the characters with me, which means I can technically write more. It would be a matter of finding a new publisher. Um, and that's one of those things that other publishers are, are not terribly keen on picking up a series that someone else um, still holds the rights to the first five books. So it would be... Um, Honestly, it's going to come out if uh, if something happens really well with the uh, the development of a Julia movie or a Julia TV series. That would be when there would be uh, a serious market for that, and and that would be certainly when when that could be a possibility. In the meantime, I've I've got plenty on my plate for my current publisher, so it's not something I would strike out and do on my own. So you started with an idea for a five book story arc, and then. Were you asked to produce the extra novellas? No, no, no. It, it started off uh, open-ended. Okay. Yeah. 
yeah. the, the series started off completely open-ended and we were doing it on, um, we were doing it two books at a time. And then, uh, we just kind of got to a point where my, my previous publisher always liked for me to take a break from the series every, um, every third book they, they would want me to do, um, well, yeah, they would want me to do three books and then do something different. And then another three books and do something different. And so we, we were trying that. And, um, I wanted to do another Julia at that point, uh, to come in with book number six. And they, they were pretty firm on, on wanting to do something else. And then by the time we got sorted out what that something would be, um, they kind of felt like it, it had lost momentum and was time to to move on, um, and and that was not a a call I was particularly thrilled with because um, we left the series with the book that hit the New York Times bestseller list. So to me, that felt like not a great time to leave. So um, I I would have I would have liked to have stayed with it, um, at least for one or two more books to really completely wrap up the series. Um, if, if I, if I knew that book five was going to be the last full novel, I, I would have changed a few things in yeah. it. Um, but that's, you know, that's the difficulty of writing an open-ended series is you always have to be prepared for the book that you're turning in to be the very last one in the series. Yes. Um, and that's, that's a difficult thing to do. It's the same as, as, you know, your favorite TV show coming to the end of its, its season, not knowing if they're renewed, uh, you know, are you doing a, uh, a program finale? Are you doing a series finale? So that's, that's kind of the, the same boat that, that you're in when you're writing a series. Yeah. It's tricky. Um, Lady Julia, we should say, mm. was, it enjoyed a huge amount of success. It was a 2000, the first book in the series was a Rita Award mm -hmm. winner for novel with strong romantic elements. And it also was a Romantic Times reviewer's choice for the best first novel, and it, it has been optioned, mm -hmm. as you've mentioned, for either TV or movies. Are we likely to see it on the screens anytime soon? Um, now that one, I can tell you, no, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> the option actually just lapsed last oh, month. Oh, what a shame. Uh, so the uh, the option for that and for the Veronica Speedwells, uh, those are currently uh, available. So we will see. Yeah. We will see yeah. what happens there. You've mentioned Veronica. I think they could be fun. Oh, yes, tremendous fun, yes. Veronica is also set in the 1880s. Um, is there something about that particular period that attracts you? You know, I, I'm not – people always want to know about that, and I wish I could give a really great answer and, and say that there was something specific. The most that I can put my finger on is that it was a time of tremendous change, and it was a time where – you know, over the course of Queen Victoria's reign, uh, society went from, and of course, I'm, I'm, when I'm, when I say anything at all uh, about history, I'm, I'm speaking specifically from uh, a, a Western-centric, Eurocentric uh, perspective on this. Society went from candle power and horsepower to the end of her reign, electricity and cars. And in between that, there was gaslight and steam power. And when you think about a 70, 80 year span of time going through that kind of upheaval and everything that that technology brought with it and all the changes, people were really, I think, towards the end of her reign. By the time you get into the 1880s and 1890s, I think people were kind of 
almost suffering from a, a, a sort of whiplash where they were they were trying to figure out what their place was. There had been a, a, a huge amount of political upheaval as well, not just technology. You know, the middle of the century saw so many different um, revolutions and wars and things were shaking out a little bit by the, 18, uh, the 1880s. But the really funny thing is when you start to dive into it, you can already see the roots of World War One in 1880s and and you know what's coming and so you 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 see these people who are at this crossroads of trying to do the best that they can to fit technology into a new world that they don't have a grasp on yet that they haven't come to terms with yet and then, then you realize just you know 30 years down the road it's all going to blow up mm-hmm. and everything is going to change again and and it's just it's really really fascinating to see because there's also so many little seeds in there of things that we tend to think of as being 20th century as opposed to 19th century. But department stores, free love, vegetarianism, birth control, uh, all of those things were were topics that Victorians talked about. They were things that Victorians knew about or invented or recreated, but they were in the zeitgeist. And we don't tend to think of Victorians that we don't think of them in department stores with escalators, you know, talking about the fact that, that, you know, they're, they're only eating turnips and cabbages because they're vegetarian. We don't think of that. And yet there were Victorians doing those things. And so that to me makes them really, really interesting. There's kind of a, I guess, a comfortable exoticism to Victorians. They're just enough like us that you can understand them, but they're different enough to make them interesting. Yeah, that's very interesting because I've noticed with historical fiction generally, there's such a strong sense that women writers of the 21st century are rediscovering how independent women of the 19th and early 20th century actually were, that they weren't that different from us. The laws were perhaps very different, but their aspirations weren't very different at all, were they? Oh, no, 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 not at all. They wanted, it's amazing when you look at what women were writing to each other and what they were doing. You know, the the so much of the official history is is written by and about men, specifically by and about white men and by and about white straight men, that when you try to look at what women were doing or people of color or people who um, had uh, a different sexuality, it's and if they were any sort of combination of those in particular, the stories are there, but you have to dig harder. You have to look further for them. And and that's what we're starting to do. And I find that so fascinating. Um, I'm, I'm a huge Twitter fiend. I absolutely adore Twitter. And part of the reason is because there are so many historians and writers and journalists who are doing those deep dives and then they get excited and they tweet about it. And so they are sharing these things and we can talk about them, and and I end up learning so much, because I I graduated from college in 1990, and I mean it was dead white European straight guys. That was what my degree was in. We didn't talk about what women were doing. We didn't talk about anything else. You know, we didn't. I I never had in in college. You know what was going on in New Zealand. I don't know. That wasn't on the syllabus. You know, they were mm. they were teaching what happened in Europe, what happened in the U.S., and that was it. Mm. Um, and so I, I, I love the fact that more and more of these stories are being recovered and reclaimed and told. And I, I think that's a hugely exciting thing. 
Yes, yeah. And a lot of your heroines are doing very interesting things. And one of them is a, a, fa- a famous aviatrix and another one is a butterfly <laughs> expert. So you have a chance mm-hmm. to do quite a deep dive into quite a few different areas yourself, don't you, when you're researching them? Oh, I do. And, and you know, part of that kind of reclaiming of women's history is is how Veronica Speedwell came to be in the first place. Because when I started really getting interested in Victoriana, um, right after I graduated from college, I, I was curious as to what the women were doing because I figured not all of them were sitting in the parlor pouring tea for the vicar. You know, they had to be doing something more interesting. And so I started reading and got very, very intrigued by the Victorian lady explorers. Uh, you know, this this kind of subset of women who packed up the petticoats and the parasols and set out to see the world. And a lot of times they were traveling places where European women had never been before. Um, and sometimes they were traveling places to where Europeans had never been before. And so, of course, they thought they were discovering things, which they absolutely were not. But they were encountering things that were unfamiliar to them and and pushing themselves into places where they were not comfortable and sometimes not welcome um, in order to learn more about what was going on. You know, when the when the men traveled, sometimes it was in the nature of scientific inquiry, but it was very often in the nature of we're going to proselytize or we're going to colonize. Mm. A lot of the time when women traveled, it was they wanted to learn or they wanted to escape. And so the more I read about them, the more fascinated uh, I became by them. And one in particular uh, was a lepidopterist, uh, a butterfly hunter by the name of Margaret Fountain. And the cool thing about butterfly hunting for Victorian women it, is it was considered a genteel occupation. It, you could do it and almost be a lady, even though you were making money at it. And so Margaret was able to make a living hunting butterflies, and she hunted all around the world, uh, six continents hunting butterflies. And she was able to amass a, a gorgeous collection of them. And she kept journals on all of her travels. And after she uh, did this for about 50 years, she dropped dead on the island of Santo Domingo with her butterfly net in her hand. And she willed her diaries and her butterflies to a university in England. And After 70 years, they cracked her journals open and found out that Margaret had not just been hunting butterflies. Margaret had had lovers all over the world. And she wrote about it. She she had boyfriends everywhere. She had, um, you know, extramarital relationships. She had uh, relationships that were interracial. Stuff that you just don't think a Victorian woman is doing. Margaret was doing it. Margaret was writing about it. Uh, and and, it, and I was so intrigued by this that I knew if I was ever going to do a second Victorian series that I I was absolutely going to kind of pay homage to Margaret and and make my Victorian heroine a lepidopterist. So that that's how Veronica Speedwell came to be a butterfly hunter um, is is as a as a love note to Margaret Fountain and as a thank you for all the the hours of uh, enjoyment I got from reading about her adventures. Perhaps that explains a little bit more clearly why Veronica in the series seems to be adamantly opposed to the idea of marriage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she's, you know, she she is a, a very much her own woman. And, um, you know, by the 1880s, laws were, were starting to be enacted where women could uh, hold on to property in a way that they could not 
um, in in earlier decades of the 19th century. And so it's a little bit easier to be a an independent woman uh, at that time. Uh, you're you're just seeing the the start of women really taking uh, taking off on their own, uh, opening businesses and 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 things in a way that you know because the the time before that was so there was this this overly domesticated you know ideal of what the perfect woman should be and and people kind of started to break out of that. Uh, closer towards the end of the 19th century, uh, the whole Victoria and Albert, uh, example of, of kind of this perfect domesticity. And this is, this is how everybody should live. The, the, this, I think the, the dull, the, the shine started to come off of that a little bit and it got a little bit dull and you start to see people chafing against these, uh, these restrictions and these, uh, these examples that had been held up to them which were, um, I, I think kind of impossible ideals in some cases, because I mean, how, if you have servants in your house who are doing all the work and you've got nannies who are raising your kids and you're not really supposed to apply yourself too passionately to learning because it can cause brain fever. I mean, what are you really supposed to do with your time if you're an intelligent woman, uh, without going completely, you know, stark raving mad? So it, it's it's interesting to see when women started to push beyond those boundaries, and uh, and and that's absolutely you know what I I needed for Veronica is for her to be the kind of woman who would say, yeah, I'm I'm really not going to sit around and knit all day. Yes, yeah, it's tantalizing to to sort of look at the the work you're doing with these wonderfully adventuresome women who who aren't looking for a happily ever after. You yourself mm. had contributed to a book which. Its tagline was, it was um, 25, I think, romance writers talking about how they mm -hmm. found their one and only. And its tagline was, happily ever after isn't just the stuff of romance, it's every woman's birthright. And I mm -hmm. know from your biog online that you married your college sweetheart on graduation day, which couldn't be more <laughs> of a romantic sort of statement. Um, tell yeah, us true. about that. <laughs> Well, it, it, the anthology, um, is called Scribbling Women and it, uh, it was done as, um, an anthology put together for the proceeds to go to, um, a women's organization in New York city, uh, that I was very, very happy to contribute to. And, um, yeah, the whole, uh, that was, I always say that my husband was inevitable. Uh, that is the feeling I had from him from, from the very beginning. I never wanted to marry young. I never wanted, I was not looking, uh, for, uh, him to come into my life for anyone to come into my life at that point. Um, I wanted, my plan was that I was going to go to Paris after graduation and I was going to write and I would probably be there till I was 30. And then maybe I would start looking for someone to date. Instead, I got married at the age of 22. Uh, <laughs> as you said, on graduation day. Um, no, I, I, I met him and, and he just felt like the most inevitable thing that was ever going to happen to me. I just, I knew that there was no point in resisting this and trying to keep to my Paris plan that I, I wanted him, that he was, he was the right person for me. Um, and that it was going to be a much, much better life if I chose him and I chose him then, uh, than to wait. 
And, um, and I went, it was hundred percent gut instinct. Um, and so I went with it and, you know, we've been together, um, our 30th wedding anniversary is next year. So it's, uh, it's worked. <laughs> Fantastic. That, that's just a yeah. wonderful story. It, it inter- yeah. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say we're, uh, we actually, he just, um, quit his job about six months ago to go freelance. So we spend every day together and, um, he's still, you know, my, my best pal and, uh, no one in the world can make me laugh as much as he can. And it's, um, there's a lot of sparky dialogue in my books between the main characters. And it's because that's how we still are with each other, which is gross. People hate being around us and I'm sorry, but, um, <laughs> But he's he's pretty awesome. They're just jealous. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's good people. That brings us very nicely into the slightly wider frame of um, your your career overall. And I wonder, is there one thing you've done, perhaps more than any other, that's been the secret to your success? Yeah, I'm a closer. I know how to finish. Um, I will sit my tail in the chair. And I will finish the book. Um, and that is the, you know, I, I get a fair number of people contacting me wanting advice on how to become a writer and how to get published. And so the first thing I used to, I used to send back this really, really long, very, very, very detailed message. And then I realized nobody ever followed through on it. Like literally not once did anybody ever follow through on it. And so I finally started telling people, you know what, finish the book first. And then come back and I will tell you everything I know. But you can't do anything till you have a finished book. Mm. Because you absolutely can't. If you're not published, an agent is not going to look at you. You, you know, the, you, mm. No publisher is, is going to want to buy your stuff. They want to know you can finish. That's the Because so many people have so many fantastic ideas and so many great setups. You know, the, the ideas are... are you know, we, we romp through a field of ideas. That's not the hard part. The hard part is having the discipline to sit down and do the work when you don't feel like doing the work, when you don't want to do the work, when the work feels like torture, that's when you have to sit down and do it. Um, and that's, that's what separates, um, people who like the idea of writing from people who actually are writers, uh, you, you know, the starting, the bright, the new, the shiny, oh God, that's the fun part. When you get to fall in love with a new idea and you're, you know, it's, you're infatuated with these new characters and you get to create a new world. And so you get to play God for a little while that is intoxicating, but you can't stay there because if you do, you never get through to the end. Um, other, you just keep starting new projects and that's fine because that there's, there's nothing wrong with doing that as a hobby, but that will never be a profession unless you'll learn how to be a closer. Yeah. And I accidentally learned that with my first book because when I was 23 and I sat down and wrote that massive, horrible, epic, long book, what I wanted to do was see how it ended. I wanted to see how to get to the end. And so I, from the very first time I tried to write a novel, finished now, I have abandoned a few since then when I wasn't quite sure of what I was doing, but I always knew I could finish a book because I had done it. And there's a huge amount of confidence that comes with that. 
And I think people get so hung up on the idea of, oh, it's got to be good, that they don't focus on the fact that it has to be done. It, it needs to be done and crap before it can be done and good. Mm. And that's the whole point mm. is let it be crap, just finish it. And then at that point, you can rewrite it until the cows come home and you can make it so much better because the, all that pressure is off as to whether you can do that book because you've done that book. Now you're just, you know, you've built that skeleton. Now you're just putting on the flesh. Now you're dressing it. Now you're putting on a party hat. Yeah. Because you've done the hardest part. You've gotten through to the end. And it took me a long time to get really comfortable with rewriting and to enjoy revisions. And now I do. Now I really love it. It's actually one of my favorite things to go in and tear apart a book and say, aha, I see where you're soggy or I see where you're not working and rip it all apart and stitch it back together and make a Franken book out of it. That is, that is so much fun, but it takes a long time, I think, in the writing process to get to that stage where you can enjoy it because it kind of feels like you failed when you look at a book and you're like, well, it's not working, or I don't like this part, or that scene doesn't read right, you feel like this monumental failure. And you have to be okay with feeling bad about what the book is doing, or feeling bad about your skill, or feeling bad about that choice that you made. You have to be okay with that. And you have to get comfortable with that. And you have to be okay with sucking until you can push through and make it better and not suck. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have to embrace the suck. That's what you have to do. And it's hard. It's not easy. It's really not easy to get to that point. So I, I, I sympathize with, um, with people who feel a lot of pressure to make that first draft perfect. Um, but that is, that is, you know, my, my first editor told me that way madness lies and she's not wrong. Uh, you, you really have to just take that pressure off yourself and, and enjoy that first draft and kind of, you know, blaze on through to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Look, turning to Deanna as reader, because this is the Joys of Binge Reading podcast, you've mentioned, of course, that you started reading as a, as a tiny tot, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you've been reading all your life. So tell me, who are some of your favorite binge reads and who would you recommend at the moment? Well, my favorite uh, kind of classic binge reads would be um, Mary Stewart or Elizabeth Peters. Um, just so much love for them because they were doing cross genre, you know, before I was, I was even out of diapers. Um, so I have mad respect for them. Um, I, who I would recommend right now, I actually just read the greatest, um, nonfiction book. It's called the five by Hallie Rubenhold. Um, and it is an assessment of the five canonical victims of Jack the Ripper. And um, Hallie has done a magnificent job of um, going in. I knew almost nothing about their lives. I didn't think the records existed. And she went and found them. And she has constructed what their lives were, where they were born, who they were as people, what their lives were like in Whitechapel. And it is absolutely one of the most fascinating things that I have ever read. Um, as far as fiction, there is a book that's getting ready to come out in July, I want to say, called Milady. <clears throat> and um, it is, and the author's name escapes me at the moment because I read it as an arc and I'm absolutely going to kick myself for not making a note of her name. It was um, 
absolutely fantastic. It is the telling of the Three Musketeers from the perspective of Milady de Winter. Um, and you want to talk about, you know, badass female characters in fiction, Milady kind of tops the list. So that was a great deal of fun. Very, very swashbuckling and a really, really great um, summertime read for us, wintertime read for you. Uh, it works It works for both. Yeah. You can read it on a beach or by a roaring fire. It works either way. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> And look, I noticed from your bio also that you're a bit of a binge watcher as well. And I wondered if there was any TV that you could recommend at the moment. Oh, yes. I am absolutely so besotted with Killing Eve. Um, and I'm not I'm not sure if it's airing in your part of the world. I hope so, because it is a phenomenal series um, that's being done for BBC and we're getting it in the States. And um, it is about um, a female um assassin and the um female detective who's trying to sleuth her out and run her to ground and it is this massive cat and mouse game it is stylish it is just whip smart and incredible incredible cast um and season two just finished so i have loved killing eve and i just on the recommendation of loads of my readers i've just started fleabag um, which is actually done by the same writer, um, which is a UK show. And I'm getting ready to start Gentleman Jack. Great. All of these, all of these are strong, strong women, uh, in these casts and just some fantastic entertainment. I'll have to look those up. I'm not quite sure if they are available here, but we'll have a look. We've got quite a lot now, but unfortunately one of our little gripes is that Netflix here doesn't have the same as Netflix US, although we you can work a hack and get Netflix US. Well, so, yeah. none of these none of these are on Netflix. No. So no. Okay. Um, Gentleman Jack is an HBO uh, production. Okay. Yeah. So uh, you should be able to get it through that. Um, yeah. And then um, Killing Eve is BBC and Fleabag is on Amazon Prime. We, get, we do have Amazon Prime and we, and we often get BBC because of being a former colony, of course. So, right. Yeah. So hopefully, hopefully yeah. those, those <laughs> will be available uh, for y'all because they're, they're so worth watching. Sadly, we're running out of time, my dear. It would be lovely to talk all day, but circling around and looking at your working life overall, this writing career of yours, at this stage, if you were doing it all again, would you change anything? And if so, what would you change? No, no, not a particle of it. Um, because I, uh, everything I've done, every decision I've made, every setback, I, I wrote for 14 years uh, before I was published. From the time I wrote that first novel when I was 23 till the time I got my first publishing deal was 14 years. And I wrote throughout those years. I wrote eight novels that were trash. They were just awful. But I learned so much. And every, every little roadblock, every obstacle, every quagmire has brought me exactly to where I am right now. And I'm... I'm incredibly happy right now. Uh, I, I am the so unspeakably fortunate to get to do what I do. And I love it so much. And I, I know uh, the, the torturous path just teaches you uh, good lessons and keeps you humble. So I, I, I don't know if I would appreciate what I have as much if it had come easily. So I'm glad it didn't. I'm glad I had to work for it. Wow, you really did have to work for it too, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I did. I absolutely did. 
So what's next for Deanna, the writer? What does your next 12 months look like in terms of projects? Well, I just turned in uh, the fifth Veronica Speedwell book uh, to my editor literally a week ago. So I will be uh, working on finishing up my proposal for the sixth Veronica Speedwell uh, to see if we can get that going. And then I have uh, the paperback release of A Dangerous Collaboration next February and the hardcover release of the fifth Veronica Speedwell in March. And then I have another little thing on the back burner that uh i'll be tinkering with to see if i can if i can get going and and that's my my secret project (laughs) (laughs) if that's not too cryptic no i imagine that you probably (laughs) always are thinking in terms of possibly a new series and well in the back of your mind it's probably there you know, there. I, I never say never about anything. There, mm. are, there are always, um, and that's one of the, the lessons that I did learn along the way uh, about this business is that, you know, my my mother jokes about the fact that um, I need to get expect the unexpected tattooed somewhere on my person because it. You just, you know, you think you're gonna zig, and no, no, we're zagging. So it's uh, it's 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 great. It keeps me on my toes. I like the I like the change. My um my business cards feature a Victorian aerialist in this gorgeous red petticoat up on a, on a high wire balancing herself because I love the, I love the metaphor of tightrope, uh, you know, for what we do. Uh, you, you always have to do the balance check. You always have to be mindful of where you are, but you always have to keep looking forward and moving straight ahead. Now I get the feeling that you very much welcome your readers, um, interaction where can readers find you, find you online and, and do you engage, where do you engage most? Oh, Twitter. Absolutely. Um, I, I no longer have a Facebook account at all, um, but I do periodically post to my blog and I do a monthly newsletter and I Instagram, but I tweet every day. I adore Twitter. So that is the easiest place to find me. And readers can also um, drop me a, a, an email if they like through my website. It's interesting. I think Twitter is, I, I, I just don't really quite understand Twitter. It definitely is something you either get or you don't get, I think. It is, um, you know, what worked for me was thinking of it as an online cocktail party. It's a virtual cocktail party. Um, you drop in, you chat with people, you, you know, slip back out. I, I'm working on getting better at Instagram. My problem is I forget to take pictures and you have to have a picture to yeah. make a post. So it's, it's, you know, Twitter's easier for me because I can do it anywhere. I can just, you know, kind of fling a tweet out into the ether and, and it, and it works. Uh, Instagram, I have to, I have to make a little more effort, but, um, but I love the pretty over at Instagram. You know, it's, it's just, it's so yeah. visually arresting to mm-hmm. go through mm-hmm. Instagram. I love it. But, mm-hmm. uh, but no, Twitter, Twitter is just, uh, my jam. I like it. Wonderful, Deanna. Look, it's been fantastic talking. I really think that you're an inspiration to, to anyone who wants to get onto this game. So thank you so much for sharing your time today. Thank you so much, Jenny. This has been such a pleasure. Bye now. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.